I uh, appreciate a good hug from Stan. I was concerned earlier that maybe you were a church that practiced greeting one another with a kiss or a holy kiss. And, you know, we went to college together, but we're not that close. You know what I'm saying? So anyway. Hey, I am glad to be here and uh, so thankful for Venture Christian Church and um, had a chance to be here, like Stan said a few months ago, and just have always been blessed by your church and uh, by the people who have served here and worked here. But one of the things I love the most about getting an opportunity like this is just being reminded how great the local church is. I love the local church, don't you? I do. In all of its shapes and sizes, I love the local church church. I was at a conference once and a pastor got on stage and he made this statement, you know, this outstanding statement that the church is the hope of the world. And I thought, well, you know, okay, theologically, where do I stand with that? And what is he trying to say? And he had gone on to explain how literally the body of Christ, the local church is actually the representation of Jesus to the world and the world around it. That where two or three are gathered together, there is the presence of God being expressed in a communal expression that is intended to be a refuge, a lighthouse, a understanding, an outpost that the mission of God should be expressed through and in those people. And so we just said over and over, the, the church is the hope of the world. When you open your Bibles and you start in the book of Acts, you start seeing the acts of the early church and its apostles, and you see a church that's very contagious. People who are God followers and people who are not God followers say things like, I'm not sure what that is, but I want to be a part of that. You know, the early church was not defined by those who had great wealth and those who didn't. Matter of fact, people who had began to leverage their lives in certain ways. Those who did not began to leverage their lives in certain ways. And in different ways, they would meet each other's needs, but they would all express their gifts to care for the community around them. The early church was not defined by Jew nor Greek. There was no real ethnic identity, one group that identified them. It was, a, it was a group of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Everyone wanted to be a part of the local church. And it grew infectiously, not just in number, but in influence and opportunity for more and more of the world to be able to, to taste and see and experience the person of Jesus. I love the local church. And so when we pause on a day like today to talk about outward-facing impact, we begin to wrestle with our own journey as a local body. What is it that defines us? Who are we as a church, and are we the kind of people that are outwardly focused for impact? Do we always have our eyes on the horizon for what God may do next in us and through us? You know, the season that we've come through in COVID has shaken up a lot of different churches. And the truth of the matter is, there are three types of churches that are emerging out of COVID. Oh, one is the church that is struggling and will probably close. The second is the church that is struggling but could, could use some help. And the third church is a church that's actually flourishing and should be mindful of the impact it could make of the churches that are around us. If you were to come visit my church, uh, the church that I'm a part of is a wonderful church, just outstanding on so many different levels. But uh, we're on a corner, on the southwest corner. If you were to look across from our church, there's another church. 
Three weeks ago, that church across the street had what they call a decommissioning service. I don't know what you understand what a decommissioning service is, but the church across the street at 3 o'clock gathered the people that still attended there and said, we're done. It's time to close the doors. Not because a matter of money or even people, but mission. Because the church that really focuses on its current membership or those who are already here is a church that begins to die a slow and painful death. The outward focus is not just what we do, it's who we are. That we should be mindful of the mission of Jesus everywhere we go. Uh, you're, you're probably wanting to wrestle with me on some of these things, so let me give you a couple of quotes of spiritual people who are much smarter than I. So there, there's a guy by the name of, of Rick Rousseau who is actually in Longmont, Colorado, and he wrote a book, and he asked this question of churches. He says, if your church were to close its doors, would anyone, would anyone in the community notice would anyone in the community care? The question is not, hey, for those of you that attend this church, if it was to close this door, would you miss it? The question is, if anybody outside of this building who does not attend, who does not have a relationship with God, who is not experiencing the full life of Jesus, if your doors were to close, would they miss you? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another great theologian, he asked this question or makes this statement. The church is the, is the church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ. To exist for others. About a hundred years before this, an Anglican priest said this, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Outwardly focused impact. It's not just what we do, it is who we are. That every Christ follower who has experienced the touch of Jesus, that we would be so compelled that the grace of God not encourages us to keep it to ourselves, but to extend our lives in a way that reflects the very nature of Jesus, where we work, live, and play. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to look at, at a verse that's going to serve as our spine, our backbone to really where we want to go today. But 1 John 3.16 is one of the verses that you've been looking at at 3.16s over and over and over again. And this is written by the uh, Apostle John, the beloved one, the close friend of Jesus. He says this, this is how we know. You might want to circle that word. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. At this point, I should probably just pray, say amen. Uh, that's pretty much crystal clear, isn't it? 
but I've got a few more minutes, so I'll stick around for a while. Let's read this together. Can we do this? Let's read this out loud. This is what it says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Two really important understandings come out of this verse, but first and foremost, John is saying that we know. We know what love is. John is saying, hey, it's not just that I kind of hung out with Jesus. It's not that I kind of believe in Jesus. This has impacted me to my core. It has pierced my heart, clarified my mind. I know who Jesus is. That Jesus, being fully God and fully man, came and died our death, paid our debt, gave of himself so that I might live. I know this to be true. I was there. I saw him beaten and bloodied, and crucified. I saw him after they buried him. And I heard him teach after he raised from the dead. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that the person of Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And it makes all the difference in the world. I know what love is. Now, this love is not a friendship love or an erotic love. It is specifically an unconditional love. A love not of merit or power or position or prestige, but a love that is rooted on the very fact that we are created in the image of God. That Every one of us have value. And God loves us so much that he would send his son to die for us. John is saying, I know this. This is not arguable in my life. So much so that I believe this and I think that love is the anthem for all of Christ's followers. When you know something to be true, it's often anchored in an event or an experience. We get that, both good and bad, right? Like if I was to ask, do you remember where you were on 9-11? Most of us take a deep breath and go, yeah. Yeah, I was in my truck. Bob and Tom were on in the morning. And they weren't laughing anymore. We also remember good things. Like remember the day that Peyton Manning held that trophy for the Colts? Right? Like a Mufasa moment. And we and Tony Dungy, we, we celebrated. That was a good day. John is saying... I was there. And it shook me. It changed me. I have surrendered every portion of my life to Jesus to make sure that everyone knows the love of God. And here you are. People who now get to experience the truth of that death, burial, and resurrection is as much active in you as it was then. Do you know it within the pit of your gut, in the deepest recesses of your heart, that you know without a shadow of a doubt that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has changed you so much so that it's not about just saving you, but sending you into a world that needs to know his love. There are two truths that John talks out about, about out of this passage that we have to understand. And the first truth is this, that when it comes to love, 
Jesus is our example. Some of you are like, this guy is not real deep. You're right, I'm not. It's what the text says. I, I don't need to add anything to it. Jesus is our example. If you want to know what love is, you need to follow in the will and the way of Jesus. If you want to know what love looks like to a world that's lost and broken, you need to follow the patterns and pace of Jesus. Jesus is the example of how we all are to live a life of love for outward-focused impact. A couple passages maybe help shape this for us so that we can see what love is. We start, I think, in the Gospel of John when he says, my command is this. I'm telling you what to do. You want to know what love is? Here's something for you to put into practice. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are, you are my friends if, if, you do what I command. This is a verse that I'm like, oh, that, that's so good. Christians are about love. We should be people of love. We should be known as a love movement. We should, we should be the kind of people that love just permeates from every portion of our body. And we go, we want to be this kind of people. But do we? If I was transparent, and I will be because I have time, uh, the truth of the matter is I have people that I don't like. And I could give you names. But I won't do that. I also have types of people I don't like. People who don't use their turning signal. That'd be one of them. Cat lovers would be, an, oh no, I shouldn't have said that. That was probably, that was probably too personal. I'm sorry, I was probably, I shouldn't, I'm sorry, Stan. I didn't mean to offend anybody. Yeah, I did, I did. We all have people that we have a list that we go, but, but God's not talking about them. God's not asking that of me. And Jesus just says, hey friend, hey, 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 hey friend, friend. You're my friend if you, if you love like I love. Is there space in your heart to be angry, hold a grudge, lack reconciliation, not forgive? No. There's no place for it. We have to learn how to love like Jesus loves. So what's that look like? Well, Romans tells us a little bit about what that looks like. When Jesus says, or when, when Paul writes this, you see at just the right time. In all of history, in everything about civilization, at the perfect time, God ordained a moment at just the right time when we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. Very rarely, I love this verse, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, some white, 50-50 eh, might die. But God... But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, while we were still fighting against, when we didn't have any desire at all to follow after the way of Jesus, Jesus already said, God, have your way in me. I love how Paul writes that. 
It was perfect for the point of history. It was perfect for all of humanity. Everything about it fell into place where it needed to. And you didn't have the strength to do it. You had no way to make it right on your own. You had no way to fix who you were before God. And God did not say, well, work a little harder. Clean up a little bit more. Get things together. And Jesus said, I, I, I got this. This is my role. The sacrifice for all of humanity paid in one life. Fully God. Fully man. Fully surrendered. Jesus is our example of what love should look like. And he invites us to love like him. The question is, do we? Here's the second truth out of this passage, though, is that when it comes to love, we are an example of Jesus to others. Not the example. Please understand that. You are an example. We already have the historic moment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We already have God's word. We already have the working of the Holy Spirit within the world, preparing hearts and minds of the world around us. But we are a portrait, a picture, a snapshot, a piece of the grand puzzle that God invites us towards and says, you can have a place to impact your world for me. What a huge privilege and the writer John kind of takes this idea of love a little bit further when he says it in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another. We've heard that, right? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus must really want us to get this point, right? He says it multiple times. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you obey and if you love, you are marked as a friend of Jesus and what following Jesus truly looks like. The challenge for each of us is there's very few of you who have been in church for more than 10 minutes that have heard anything new or profound today. The obstacle of loving the world the way Jesus is is not for a lack of knowledge. It's for a lack of obedience. And we know, we know that these truths are what called us, that brought us into this place of grace before God, is that these truths have pierced who we are. But have they pressed us back into the world that we're a part of? If you were to summarize this passage, this idea of 1 John 3.16, I think it's this. As Jesus would give, so we should live. As Jesus would give, so we should live. Because the portrait of Jesus' love is not just a, a hug or a handshake or a, a look of kindness into somebody else's eyes. It was a surrendered sacrifice. It cost him his life. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. Jesus gives himself so that we might know his love we should live 
for him and like him so the world would experience God's love through us. I'm privileged to serve at a church right now called Plymouth Covenant Church. If Indianapolis is a clock, Carmel is kind of the 12. If Minneapolis, St. Paul is a clock, Plymouth is kind of the 10. Our communities are very, very similar. Very, very similar. Over 20 years ago, Plymouth Covenant Church had a conversation about whether the church should exist anymore or not. They sat down, they invited some leaders in, they had some hard conversations about who they were and they could not meet their mortgage, they did not have a lead pastor, they were not sure what's next and so they they hired a a man by the name of Frank Riley. Now I have never met Pastor Frank Riley, but the legend goes as this, a small church that was fledgling to even pay its staff or its bills worked with some leaders that brought in a pastor to help catalyze and maybe even correct the trajectory of their church. And after spending some time with the people that were there, the staff that were there, the leadership was there, he felt inspired to challenge the church to become a church-planting church. Literally, that they would take a portion of their people and send them out and start another church. Now, who in their right mind circles the wagons, looks at everybody and says, we're not sure if we can keep the doors open. What we need to do is we need to send more people out. Someone who recognizes that outward-focused impact is not what we do, it's who we are. Right? Well, the legend of Frank Riley goes like this. He's there for a couple of years. The church begins to catalyze. Church planting becomes a part of their DNA. And they begin to plant a church. And then he left. And for a year and a half, he wasn't there. And then they hired a a guy from Canada named Pastor Dan Johnson. You should meet Pastor Dan Johnson. He's the life of the party. He is the the joy in the room. He has this motto called enjoying God together. And he just kind of of lives with this lifeful exuberance that God is at work always and everywhere. That church that was fledgling caught a new vision, began to get outwardly focused, even in a season where there was not a pastor, continued to stay focused on the community around them. Over the last 20 years, they've planted multiple churches, both locally and globally. And it's interesting, because back when Frank Riley was there, the two churches on the corner were roughly the same size. Same size buildings, Same size mission, same size focus, and something changed. One became about who was already there, and one became about who isn't. I had the privilege to plant a church in the inner city of Tampa. Probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. We moved in the inner city. Our kids went to inner city public schools, and 
94% of the kids in the school were free and reduced lunch kids, and you have opportunities where as a church, you're like, how do, how do you help? How, how do you build a church even in an environment like that? And so we plant this church. There's high needs everywhere. People are struggling with multi-generational poverty, and we're just trying to figure out what can we do? And so we began to think that, well, if we were to make one one thumbprint, where would we want to start? And we said, well, let's, let's do the public school. And so our, our our, we had a team together and our, our children's pastor, she went in and she spent some time building relationships there and we said, well, let's start doing backpacks. And so as a church, we would do backpacks and we would actually get other churches to help us and we were giving out backpacks left and right within our church. But one day I was at home and my two sons went to the school and we got a letter from the school. The school letter was about the policy No Child Left Behind and that our school had failed one too many times. And so they gave us this letter that said, in the next year, if your school grade does not start to raise, we're going to need to make some changes. And with that policy, what that meant was every administrator would be removed, every teacher would be replaced, and they would just jumpstart a school. That's really difficult on an inner city environment. It takes a lot to build relationships there. And so we sat down with the teachers and we just said, what, what, what can we do to really make a difference? We want to help, but we feel like we're over here and you're over here. And they said, would you give us the backpacks and can we give them away? And we said, well, we're, we're a church. We want people to be able to come. No, no, no. Here, here's the deal. You give us all the backpacks with all the supplies and we will, we will use our phone system to call every house in our school and tell them that Common Ground Christian Church is providing them a backpack, and we will invite them in to meet their teacher and get their backpack supplies. So the day happened. <laughs> the phone call went out. Over the next week, parents, family members began to show up, and for the first time, what the principal told us is teachers and families had connections well before school ever started and relationships were started before the school season even began, and they could know each other. So they didn't only call when kids were having trouble. They actually became friends out of the gate. That went so well that the next thing that they said, well, hey, hey, you guys do a, you do a fall festival, right? You do Halloween stuff? So we said, yeah, yeah. every Halloween, we, on our location, on our campus, we, we tend to reach community and try and do what we can. And, you know, a little bitty inner city church, we'd reach maybe 300 people or so that would come and visit us. And, you know, we'd do candy and we'd do bounce houses and we'd do all sorts of fun that we could. And they said, have, have you ever thought about doing it here? Well, of course not. Public schools and churches working together, what, what's up with that? You know, would you be willing to come on our campus and host your fall festival? We'll call every household and let them know that Common Ground Christian Church is bringing their festival here. But we'll also, with the parent and teacher stuff, some of our committees, we're going to sell hot dogs and pickles and things like that, and we're going to try and raise some funds for our kids. And, and, and you know what? We reached twice as many people on the school's campus than we did on our own. Now, I'll just tell you, be careful, because in the inner city, people will wear, wear some pretty intriguing outfits at Halloween. It gets a little bit scary once in a while, but we began to build a relationship together. Then the day came that we had a spring concert. And for whatever reason, we were having incredible technical difficulty. And 
The principal comes walking towards me with a microphone and says, hey, we can't get this to work, but I'm going to give it to you, and you just need to keep talking. But I want to give you a few minutes. Would you go up and talk to this crowd um, and stall for us till we get the system working? And you know, there's no pastor that ever gives given a microphone that ever wonders if they ever have anything to say. They, we always have something to say. But I, I walk to the front, and I'll just be transparent. I'm, I'm standing in a room that does not look like me. It's a room full of diverse faces, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, people who think differently, maybe believe differently, maybe act differently, eat differently. And I'm somehow supposed to take a moment to grab the room and point them in a direction that nobody gets restless or frustrated. And so I just start with this. I said, you know, it's been difficult over the last few weeks to send our kids to school. See, just a few weeks before, the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting had happened. And you could see faces of mothers and fathers and grandparents and brothers and sisters and cousins. Yeah. Begin to listen. Now, I wish I could tell you that I shared a gospel message and they lined up and got the swimming pool out and we baptized hundreds of people, but we didn't. But one of the reasons we were able to have that moment was because we were there. We were a part of the community. And they were our people. See, when the church has outward-focused impact, it's not a fleeting moment of charity or kindness. It's the character of Jesus being expressed in relationship, hand in hand. Longmont, Colorado has a church called LifeBridge Christian Church. And when they are writing this book, talking about neighboring and all sorts of different things about the externally focused church, they said, what's the one need that we could maybe address? And so what they came to resolve was that the need of foster care was so great in their community that they were going to challenge their church to help eradicate the need for foster care in their county. And so they just kept raising up, and they just kept raising up people to take on foster care opportunities, and they began to influence local churches to consider the same and consider the same, and doggone it, they accomplished their goal. No child needed foster care because every one of them were placed what I love about this story is that the head of the social services of that county was a Wiccan witch. And publicly she said, we have no idea why this is happening. And a church said, we do. But isn't that beautiful? That the local church could stand in the gaps and eradicate foster care and say, this is our place. This is our thumbprint on our community. This is who we're called to be. So what say you, Venture Christian Church? 
I'm not asking every one of you to walk out of here with a new ministry idea that you need to do with this church because honestly that may be overwhelming and it may distract the overall mission but there are probably a couple of you in here that have been sitting with a burden on your life that you're just waiting to take a step and God's tapping you on the shoulder and say we're done waiting today's the day figure out how to serve figure out your place if we know the goodness of Jesus we have surrendered our life to his death, his burial, and his resurrection to live out his pace in this place. Each and every one of us are going to be called to give our lives in a way that lives like Jesus. Not just because this is what we do, but because this is who we are. So what is God calling our church to be? What is God calling our church to do? And how am I a pivotal part of the solution? Because we need everyone, everyone, to live what they know to be true about Jesus at home and work and play. Because let's be honest, we believe everyone spends eternity somewhere so let's get after it while we can let's pray god thank you so much for a simple verse with a high challenge god i think we get tired of watching a church hide in its gatherings and not scatter on your mission God, there are more than plenty of opportunities around us to step up and to step out. So God, we would ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you convict us and compel us to move beyond our own comfort, to begin to bend our hands and extend, or bend our knees and extend our hands in a way that as we look to heaven, God, our hearts would be filled with your joy and our minds would be quickened with your convictions of how compassion Mercy and justice can transform the world that you've created. God, move in us. Move through us. Make us like you. And may we be faithful and fruitful to the mission you've called us towards. God, we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.